So if you have a Bible, turn excitedly with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. But let me ask you a question before we get there. Have you ever had someone tell you something really, really kind, really awesome, really loving, really uplifting, and then later you find out there's actually something important that you wish they would have told you that they left out? Have you ever had one of those moments? It seemed like, man, a really encouraging piece, but they didn't tell you the whole story. So maybe for you, they told you that you did a great job on a project or a certain presentation, but they failed to mention that you had a big tear in your pants and everyone was aware of it the whole time, right? <laughs> or, or, or maybe they complimented you on your cooking. Oh, it's really good. But they also left out the part where uh, everyone went to the hospital to have their stomachs pumped from your cooking. Or maybe someone says, hey, I love you and I appreciate you. And then they left out the part and they said, you know what? Now I change my mind. Now I, I change my mind. I, I, I hate you. I don't like you. They, when these pieces are left out and we don't hear the whole story, we, we have this information, but only partial. So being told nice things is really great, but being told part of the story and having the other part left out only makes things worse in the end, it, do, it doesn't feel awesome. It, it really leaves things out and it feels worse. And so as we look at our text, Paul's gonna really make sure that he doesn't leave an important part of his message out. And, and thus far, we've really been encouraged a lot. We've been, we've been uplifted in, in what our identity in Christ is. But now right here where he's gonna start is with some bad news. He's gonna look to the past and he's gonna say, listen, here's what you, were, you once were and this is the first part of where he starts and you don't get to pick, okay? So as he writes in his letter, as we've looked the last three weeks, he's really talking about our identity being in Christ and then in this first part, he's saying, listen, I wanna remind you of where you came from. So the last three weeks, we looked at Ephesians 1 and now as we look at the first 10 verses in Ephesians 2, what we see is Paul shift a bit. Because before in chapter one, what he was focusing in and focusing on is here's who you are in Christ. And, and, and those subjects of what we covered is that we are called saints, not sinners, that are blessed and that are appreciated by Jesus. And Paul says this very clearly. He communicates this really importantly. This is who you are in Christ and this is what you have in Christ. But then he shifts, he shifts big and he writes in chapter two and in those first four words that we're gonna read, he says, and you were dead. He gives really strong language. He doesn't just say, hey, things were bad before, things were awful before and you were dead. I mean, it's not a very positive message, not a very relevant to our culture kind of message, definitely not a crowd pleaser, right? If you wanna get a motivational speaker in the room, no one's gonna call Paul and say, hey, could you come and speak and just say nice things? Because he's gonna say at one point, you were dead, okay? And we don't like to look at the past. We don't feel that it's, that it's positive, it's negative, and it's not helpful. But Paul's really going to remind the church of who they were so that they can understand to hold fast to who they are now in Christ. And so he shares this important truth. Here's who you were, but we, we talk about this. We bring this up because here's the mess and here's the message. So as we read these first 10 verses in chapter two, what Paul is really gonna do is remind the church of the past. He's going to ground them in the present and he's gonna focus them in on the future. 
He's gonna remind the church of the past. He's gonna ground them in the present and he's really gonna focus us in on the future. And so the sentence for us that we see from our text this morning as we go to read these first 10 verses is that we are made alive. If you're taking notes, you can fill in these blanks right now that we are made alive by God's grace and in Christ, we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. And so we're gonna read this in Ephesians 2 starting in verse one. And if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen behind me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen? By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's your identity. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness Toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us really quick. Father God, we come before you, and as we unpack your word, God, we know that it's, it's Paul's writing, but it's your word. And so, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see here in Scripture that we are made alive, that it's by your grace and that you have called us co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters, and in fact, you give us that name, that, you, that we are your workmanship. And so, Father, I pray that as we unpack these 10 verses, Father, would you open up our hearts and open up our minds to really see what you have laid before us in your word. And it's in your name we pray, amen, amen. So we are made alive. Paul makes it clear. And in verse five, where we get our series title from, Made Alive, Paul says, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And so this language right here, he's not saying before Christ, there was no physical life in you, but really that death, what he's saying is it was you living apart before Christ. Think about your life before you started following Jesus. Right? Think of all the, the disciples when Jesus went up to them. Matthew was a tax collector. He wasn't in Bible study, in small group. Think of Peter. He's out in a boat fishing. What do fishermen do? Swear a lot. Right? So these are the men that Jesus gathers, and he's saying, listen, before Christ in you, life was very different. And, and so this is what Paul's reminding them. Understand life was different. Therefore, now life should look different as well. So now Christ is in you. And the word dead that Paul uses really refers to the state of being separated from God. 
Really, there's this separation, and this word is the same. This word death is the same that the father uses in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 24, when he says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So Paul uses this metaphor of death and it's significant. It's not just like, ah, we were kind of separated. We were kind of dead. No, there's no middle ground here that Paul gives us. There is no kind of living, kind of limping through Christianity. There's dead and there's alive. And so a person is either one of those. There is no middle ground. And that's just as a dead body does not respond to stimuli. The spiritually dead person cannot respond to spiritually spiritual stimuli unless enabled to do so. So what that means for us is that only God provides the ability. We can't do it on our own. We can't go from death to life without God making that available. And so this is where Jesus steps in. This is the truth of the gospel and what we have in Christ. Let me give you an illustration of this. A couple weeks ago in, uh, on King 5 News, um, there was a story of a woman who lost her four-year-old boy to uh, circumstances unknown by doctors and just heart-wrenching. I mean, as a father reading this, my heart just aches for this, this woman losing her son. And, and then they go on to tell how she then willingly gave up her son's body so that his heart specifically could go to a little girl, a four-year-old girl who was in need of a heart. She was dying. And, and on her own, with her own heart, she would not survive. And, and so from this point, then what happens was they went through the surgery process and this little girl is now alive today with this new beating heart. And so this mom gets together with this other mom and little girl and they give her a stethoscope and they say, now listen to your son's heart, alive and beating. This is what we have in Christ. You and I were dead. At no point are we able to come alive. There is no, without Christ, there is no beating heart inside of us. So God sends Jesus to the cross for our sake, rips open his chest, and the power that God put in Christ to raise him from the dead and bring back this beating heart is alive in you and I. So what that means is when we have right standing before God, it's not by our efforts, not by our works. And when we come before God, he takes this spiritual stethoscope and he goes up to us. And when he puts it to our heart, he says, that's my son's heartbeat alive in you. This is how we've been made alive, not by us, but by God. And so what that tells us, the beauty of that gospel message is that God acted first on our behalf. It's not by anything we did, but by God acting first on our behalf because the dead are not capable of reviving themselves. There is no capability in that. So for us to have life in Christ, God moved, moved towards us in love and gave us grace. Not the wrath he poured out, all the wrath that we deserved onto Christ, killing him. And the power that God had that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. And so when God, when we come before God and he hears our heart, it's Christ's heartbeat. It's that we are made alive, not by us, 
but by God's grace. And so the second part, amen indeed. So the second part then of verse five, Paul says that we are made alive in a really specific and a really important way. That the salvation we receive is because it is by grace, by grace alone that we have been saved. And when it comes to salvation, there's really two categories of viewing salvation. And the first is works. And most, if not all religions and spiritualities apart from Christianity teach something called works. And that, it's, that is that you can save yourself by doing certain things and not doing other things. That there's a method by your own works that you can achieve this salvation. And in some cases, in some religions, in some spiritualities, you can in fact become your own saver, savior, then saving yourself. And so we see this throughout many different religions and spiritualities. And in Buddhism, it's the ceasing desires that saves you. In Confucianism, it's education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, and living a moral life that saves you. In Hinduism, detaching from your separated ego and making an effort to live in unity with the divine saves you. In Islam, living a holy life of good deeds saves you. In Orthodox Judaism, repentance, prayer, and working hard to obey the law saves you. In New Ageism, gaining a new perspective through which you now see that you're connected to all things as a divine oneness that saves you. In Deoism, which is, uh, Deo means way, path, or principle, aligning yourself with that Deo, with that principle or way or path to have peace and harmony saves you. And even many people in their own minds really believe that being a good person alone saves you. Some even believe that at funerals, many people seem to really think that, that dying saves you. That when you leave this world behind, you become that saved person. And so this category is really works. It's works to be saved. If you do all of this, you will be in right standing with your deity. And so it's really this method of do this, don't do that, so that you will be saved from whatever your fate is. And so that's works. But the second method that we see of viewing salvation is through grace. So Christianity here is very different because we are not saved by our works. Paul's been very clear about this. He's repeating himself multiple times about this. We're not saved by our works. We are saved by Jesus's works. Not our works, Jesus's works. And Paul says it here in Ephesians 2 verse five later. He says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. He's wanting to continue this understanding. Listen, if you forgot that you were saved by grace, by the way, you were saved by grace. Okay, whenever, whenever Paul repeats himself, he's not having an ADD moment. Paul's a very intentional writer. So he's saying, listen, you are saved by faith. By the way, you are saved by faith. Very intentional. And so he's saying, you are saved by faith through faith. And now faith is trusting in Jesus's works. It's the trusting in his works, not your own. And faith is the active trust and belief displayed through obedience. So faith involves the whole self, not, not just a thinking, it's the mind, the heart, and the body. It's an obedience in relationship. So where we are in relationship with God, we express trust and a grateful response 
to his loving initiative, to his loving invitation to be in relationship with him. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians verse eight and verse nine, what we see is he says, this is not your own doing. Okay, so this is where he says, it's not about your works, it's the gift of God. And why does he do this? So it's not a result of works. Verse nine, it's not a result of works. So here we learn that we are saved by grace. And when the Bible uses the language of grace, it's talking about Jesus's works for your sake. When the Bible uses the language of works, it's talking about our works. So what Paul is saying is we're not saved by what we do or who we are. We're saved by who Jesus is and what Jesus has already done. That's grace. That even while we were dead, as Paul says, we've been made alive in Christ. Not by our efforts, not by what we do, but by Christ in us. So what this means is the unmerited favor and the undeserved love of God is what we receive. This means that God pours out all of his affection towards those who put their faith and trust in Jesus's works. Not not their own, but Jesus's works. And, And what I said in week two, just to remind you, what this means then is in Christ, we have the opposite of the worker's view viewing that if I work harder, then I will receive salvation. We have the opposite of that in Christ because it's something we didn't work for. And and then also we, we looked at the fact that in Christ, we have the opposite of the debtor's view because in Christ, we have something that we don't have to pay for, something we never could pay for. And so this is grace. This is God's grace poured out to you and I, those who are made a life made alive in Christ. And so then with our identity in Christ, we are called his workmanship. We're called God's workmanship. And we see in verse 10, in this passage, the last thing that Paul points out, he's really bringing it back to our identity in Christ, really sharing with us that it's rooted in our identity in Christ. And he's focusing us in on the future and making this really important. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there's a distinction there still with works. So the the works that were created in Christ to do are different from the works in verse nine. So catch this because there's the difference because Paul mentions works in two different forms. And so what he's saying here that we are God's workmanship and we're created in Christ Jesus for these good works, it's different for the works before. And here's why. Because these are not works for salvation. These are works of salvation. So they're not the root of our faith. They're the fruit of our faith. They're not what brings us into relationship with God. They're what come out of our relationship with God. So it's not that we're saved by works but rather that we're empowered by the grace of God to do good works. And so these types of works that we're called to in Christ and and the grace of God together are not against each other, but they go together. That God's grace is for the forgiveness of our sins. God's grace is what empowers us to go out and do these good works in Christ. So you can do good works by the grace of God to the glory of God. So it's, it's not to create a tally and go, man, am I in right standing with God? You are already in Christ. 
You are already in Christ. It's not by your works, not by your efforts. It's all been resolved on the cross. So our good works in Christ then get to be to the glory of God. God, use me. God, God, make me yours. The gifts and the way that you've wired me, use that for the furthering of your kingdom. So, so let me put this before you then. God isn't calling all of you to do the same thing. God isn't calling all of you to be elders in the church. God isn't calling all of you to be worship leaders in the church. God is not calling all of you to be teachers in the church and stand in this way before the body and and share the word of God in this way. But God is calling all of us together to good works. All of us together, our part, working together. And for some of us, for, for all of us, that looks really different. For some of you, that's being a mom. And I know there's, there's new moms in the room and, and even for, for my wife, as she is a mom, that, that's good works. Doing those things under the glory of God, those are good works. Raising kids to follow Jesus. Being a leader is good works. Being a servant is good works. Being a landscaper is good works. Or, or a volunteer in different areas, both in this program and outside these walls. All of this is an opportunity to do as it was unto God. And here's why. Because the believer sees their work as worship. They see their work as worship where how God has created him as his workmanship, it's an opportunity to bring glory to God, to do the work as worship. And so even Paul tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, here's the thing about this verse that kind of restricts us from our own uh, methodology and our own translation of thinking in here. You don't get to do whatever you want. If we are in Christ, whatever you do, then should bring glory to God. So it's not going, well, man, man I, I, I'm just gonna go off and sell drugs to the glory of God, right? <laughs> I, I'm gonna lead a shady business under the glory of God. Hey, whatever I'm doing, Whatever I'm doing, but it's saying, listen, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. Are you bringing glory to God in your living? Is your work as worship to God? Because you were created in Christ. You are called God's workmanship, and we're called together to these good works. But here's what I wanna remind you too as we come to a close. God doesn't need your works. If he needed your works, it wouldn't be by grace that he saved you. God doesn't need your works. God desires your works because your neighbor is who needs your works. God doesn't need your works. Your neighbor is the one who needs it. And by filling that need, we then grow closer to God because we are, as we are created in his image, we have an opportunity to display the relationship that we have with God. Right? So it's not the root of our faith, it's the fruit of our faith. And, and it's not that it brings us into relationship with God, but it's what's coming out of our relationship with God. But God doesn't need our works. Our neighbor needs our works. God doesn't need school supplies, but the kid without a dad does. God doesn't need groceries, but a single mom does. God doesn't need you to run an honorable company, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need you to love your neighbor, but your neighbor does. God desires these things for us. 
And so the good works are not things that God needs. These are things that he desires. These are things that your neighbor needs. And it's a way of loving our neighbors, loving one another in such a way that it's showing the love that Jesus has for us. This love that he has for us, that that we're no longer dead, but we're made alive in Christ by the grace of God and called his workmanship. And so we do this. We're called into these works, not so that God would love us, but because he already has. Not so that we'd come into right relationship with God, but because we already are. And not so that God would be pleased with us, but because in Christ, he already has. Now, let me say this. There are two different groups of people in this room. Some of you who come from a very religious background, and for you, the idea of works feels daunting and non-relational. And for you, I would encourage you that any of your works that you do, whether in the church of serving or active outside these walls as the body of Christ, let them be unto Christ. Don't let anyone tally those up for you. Only let Christ do that. If you do one thing this week in work that's unto worship, bring God the glory in that. Don't let anybody judge that it's one, not three. And for some of you, you come from a, a background, whether, whether religious or non-religious, you come from a background and, and works just seems like one more added thing that is in my, my list of things I'm supposed to tell you so that we can get all the slots filled in volunteering, which isn't true. The reality is all of us are called together. And, and if we, as the body of Christ, are not active with one another, then why would we invite anyone into this? If we're not active together, if we're not the body of Christ together, why would we want to invite anyone into this? A couple years ago at our Arrows Out conference, which is where our church, all of our locations gather together, one of the pastors um, who uh, is, the, is one of the guys who uh, was a big influence in my life, some for the good, some for the bad, um, but uh, one of the things that he said from uh, one of the sessions was, um, because he's a cigar smoker, beer drinker, and a horseback rider with a bunch of guys over in Idaho. And one of the things he says is he says, you know, you could judge me. You could tell me how I need to do better and what I need to do different. But I know my neighbors. And that challenged me. And I hope that challenges you. We could very easily judge one another we could easily say, this is what you're doing right or not doing right. You, hey, I think you're kind of dead. I, I don't think you're made alive. We could easily together judge one another. I know some of you are very opinionated because I get your texts. I think some of us together, it's okay. I'll still take your texts. I love you. But here's my point. If all we are focused on is our opinion, our method, our approach to other people's works, We'll never ask the question of what is my works to do? What is my call that Christ has created me, that God has created me for in Christ? So let me just ask you that. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know the people around you who are walking around dead? And do you understand the part of the good works that you're called into doing? Let's pray.